All right, thank you. Happy Easter, everybody. He is risen. Man, if you're visiting, I'm glad you're here. I hope you have, I hope that the next three-hour sermon changes your <laughs> life. Oh, it's, it's, yeah, we'll finish when we finish. A year ago, on Easter Sunday, I stood on this stage and I preached to about 12 to 15 people. And Lamar and I, we weren't even sure if anybody was gonna show up. We knew God had told us to keep the church open no matter what, but we didn't know. It was the beginning of a very bizarre and stressful year. We've been through a lot. A year that none of us will likely forget and a year that many of us hope to never see again. Circumstances of the COVID-19 pandemic impacted all of us in so many ways. It took away our optimism, it, it took away our happiness, and it even threatened our joy. We all have to admit this has been a really challenging year. Future years look like they're going to be challenging too. On Easter, we turn our thoughts to God, some looking for answers, some demanding explanations, others not even sure of what to ask. I think most of us are just tired. We've seen so many areas of our lives change. The circumstances seem to keep changing. Recently, somebody told me, you don't seem so happy anymore. I said, the reason's simple, I'm not. I don't like my circumstances. I don't like what's happened to America. I don't like what's happened to our national leadership. I don't like what's happened to churches or small businesses or racist organizations forcing me into their definition of truth. I don't like how COVID has impacted our culture and our lives. I don't like it. I don't like it. I don't like it, Sam, I am. That, that brings up another point. What happened to my books? I'm one unhappy person right now. The world I dreamed of seems to be gone. The world that shoots the finger at God seems to be here. People are telling me what I'm supposed to think, what I'm supposed to remember about history, even how I'm supposed to address males and females. God made it simple. He made them male and female. That's good enough for me. Welcome to my Easter rant. But I want to tell you something. I've never in my life been more full of joy. My joy is overflowing. I don't know what to do with all of it. In fact, my life, happiness and joy seems to always be at the opposite end of the spectrum. That seems odd to people because they think it's the same. But I would go so far as to say my joy seems to be dependent on me being unhappy. It's through the difficult circumstances of this year that I've held on to God, that I've drawn close to God. It's when my world makes no sense that it forces me to go to God and say, what in the world is going on, God? I need your perspective because honestly, mine is horrible. My faith is off the charts. My understanding of what God is doing is becoming cemented. My joy is blowing up. I see what he's doing. I love everything about it. I get the big picture. We're headed to the end. I'm excited about it. I'm pumped up about what God is doing in our world. I just struggle living in it. We're here today to celebrate Easter. A moment in history that has not yet been erased. When the most horrible event to ever occur revealed the glory of God. 
and flooded us with joy. No one who followed Jesus was happy with the circumstances around his death and resurrection, but they would one day understand the deep joy that it brings. So you may have realized by now that happiness and joy are not the same thing. In many ways, they're opposite. They come from very different places. They produce different responses, and we'll see that people choose to pursue one or the other. If you pursue the happiness of the world, you'll never find true joy. And if you pursue true joy, you'll never find happiness in this world at the level you want it to be. They're not the same. And we're going to unpack that today as we continue our series on spiritual fruit. And the fruit that we're going to look at today is, guess what? Joy. Now, if you're new, let me tell you a little bit about spiritual fruit. Jesus told those who trust in him, those who believe in him, that they would receive the Holy Spirit. And the evidence of the Holy Spirit in their lives is they would begin to change from the inside. Things would happen to them. They would change who they are. They would develop spiritual fruit, they called it. It's the evidence of a life that has been encountered with Jesus. He said, you're going to see in people who are connected to me supernatural changes. You're going to see things from the throne of God on earth, and you're going to know it came from God. Galatians 5.22, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. And we've all said we want more of these things in our lives. Jesus taught us that he grows fruit in us if we abide in him. In other words, he doesn't just give us fruit. It's as we spend time with him, as we get on our knees and go, God, what in the world is going on? He begins to encounter us. He begins to shape us and mold us. As we surrender our plans to his, these fruits begin to be manifested in our life. As we get his perspective and then decide to surrender to it, we begin to see our, ourselves becoming more loving and caring. And a critical point I want to make sure we all remember is that you cannot grow spiritual fruit on your own. It's spiritual fruit, not you fruit. You can try to make yourself more loving. You can try to make yourself more joyful and more peaceful. And honestly, most of us have tried that and you know it doesn't work. Not at the level that God can bring it. These are spiritual fruit. They only come from the Spirit of God. Our lives, if surrender, become the garden, the soil that God uses to manifest himself, to grow himself, to show the world who he is. The only way we can produce true love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, and goodness is to walk with the Holy Spirit, to keep in line with the Spirit moment to moment. This week, we turn our hearts towards joy. Now, I have to admit, I watch some bizarre TV shows. I do. I don't know why. And I have to admit, one of the ones that I kind of binged on for many years was called Locked Up Abroad. I have no idea why I watch this show. It's the exact same story every time. Different country, different person, same story. If you've seen one, you've seen them all. Yet I keep watching. People get arrested trying to smuggle in and out contraband. Thousands of miles from home, locked up, chained up, desperate, fearful, and freaked out. And I find myself wondering, I wonder what their first phone call home was. How do you find the words to express the feelings that you have? Help! 
I need, a, I need out. I need something. How do you find those words when your world is upside down and your fear has come true and you know you're never going home again? What would you say? You're locked up abroad. You may not realize it, but the first episode of Locked Up Abroad occurred in 62 AD. A man named Paul had gone abroad leaving behind his friends at Philippi and Galatia and Jerusalem, and he was carrying what many considered to be contraband, the gospel message of a Messiah named Jesus. It caught distributing the message, people were put to death. Paul is imprisoned in Rome. Just two years, Rome would burn and Nero would see to it that Christians did so too. Paul knew that he would never leave Rome alive. He knew it. He was locked up abroad in a place where some Christians burned on stakes just to light the streets at night. Others were fed to the lions just to entertain the people. Turns out he would never leave Rome. He would be beheaded three years later. So I wonder, what were the words that he had to those he loved? What was he saying from that prison? What was he saying from death row? Fortunately, we don't have to wonder what his conversation was like because we have the prison letters of Philippians, Ephesians, Colossians, and Philemon. Now picture Paul in his cell, dark, empty, full of people in despair, people being tortured, like the prisons I see in Locked Up Abroad. He's chained to a prison guard, no freedom, no food, failing health, no visitors. God could have prevented his arrest but didn't. His circumstances likely couldn't get much worse than they already were. From his perspective, it would be easy to think that God had abandoned him. He needs to let those he loves know what's happened to him. Paul asked to write something and they allow it. Imagine the guard looking over Paul's shoulder as he writes to people in Philippi. You know they must have screened all the letters going out of prison and the prison guard's looking over Paul's shoulder as he writes. Can you imagine what he would say? I can imagine, God, where are you? People, come help me because I don't know what God's doing. What would be on your heart? Think about the uncertainty that you would have, the fear, the anxiety. Paul knew he was going to be a martyr. He, he knew that unless an amazing miracle happened, he was in a Roman prison and he knew what happened to Christians who were in Roman prisons. Look, look at this verse as he pours out his fear and his, and his failure and his, and his concern. Rejoice in the Lord always. I'll say again, rejoice, he says. Where does that come from? Paul, do you not know your circumstances? Do you not understand what's going on? You're locked up abroad. Are those the words that flow from your heart? Can you rejoice always? How is that even possible? The guards must have thought he was crazy. They've never seen words like this on any prison letter that went out. He's obviously planning on pleading insanity. Rejoice, rejoice always. Could you have joy and contentment in the midst of such a setting? If we were honest, most of us would say, no. Mm -mm. We couldn't be happy in those circumstances. And some of us aren't even happy at church today. We're already upset. Maybe it's about the parking or perhaps you didn't like breakfast or... Frustrated with the person volunteering to serve you breakfast, or maybe the worship set's not what you wanted. Maybe this 
too soft, too loud, not the songs you wanted. Maybe you're hoping for a younger or older pastor. <laughs> Maybe you were just hoping for a break from me. That's possible too. Maybe it's too hot, too cold. Maybe the chair is just uncomfortable. Maybe today is the day you finally had it with the orange carpet. Maybe this is it. I can't go on anymore. And joy might not be at the top of your list of things that you walked into this room thinking about today. So how did Paul do it? His circumstances were much worse than ours. We complain and Paul rejoices. What does that mean? Have you ever thought that maybe Paul was just a psycho with a pen? Have you ever thought about this? I mean, maybe he's just crazy. Maybe he's masochistic. He seemed to look for opportunities to suffer. He went from town to town to get beat up. He knew he was going to get beat up. Maybe he was just nuts and wrote letters. I always picture him with wide eyes and frizzed out hair and something always bandaged and broken arms and legs and eyes darting around in pressured speech. And I picture him manic, never sleeping, amped up on Macedonian Red Bull. I just see Paul like going around the world with this huge message of his. And he's always writing crazy stuff. Maybe he's just a nut. Paul was either crazy or he knew something worth discovering. Interesting, they said the same thing about Jesus. Either he's lunatic or he's Lord. He's either crazy or he knew something the rest of us should pay attention to. Paul wrote to his friends in Philippi. The book cleverly he called Philippians, or we did. It has only four chapters. Yet in those four chapters written from prison, he uses the word joy 11 times. Most of us would understand if Paul was not joyful. His life's full of pain, suffering, and agony. Let me remind you of Paul when he did his How I Spent My Summer story. I'm talking like a madman with far greater labors, far more imprisonments and countless beatings and often near death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes, less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea. On frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, danger, danger, danger. In toil and hardship through many sleepless nights, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. Now let me ask you this question. Where on that list would your joy have exited? My ability to find joy would have checked out with the first lash, the first beating. Stoned, shipwrecked, adrift at sea, danger, hunger, thirst, cold. And now he can add to that, locked up in a Roman prison on death row. Not exactly the building blocks for what we would call a life of joy. Maybe. But what is joy? We tend to confuse joy with happiness. But joy and happiness are two totally different concepts. They come from two totally different sources. Happiness is a human emotion that comes from the world around us. Human events happen and we respond to them. 
Joy is a supernatural fruit that comes from God. It's deep. Happiness should be called happiness because it depends on what's happening in your life. If things are going well with me, things are going well, I'm happy. Anyone can find happiness for a while. You buy something that temporarily makes you happy. You meet somebody that temporarily makes you happy. You, you go on a trip or something that takes your mind off everything else and temporarily you're happy. But it all depends on what's happening to you. If things aren't going well for me, then I'm unhappy. Joy, on the other hand, is represented through Scripture as a profound, compelling quality of life. It seems to transcend circumstances. It has nothing to do with your circumstances. It is a divine dimension of living for God on earth, given to us, because he who is divine is living in us. The Hebrew word means to leap or spin around with pleasure, implying gladness and bliss and celebration. That's, that is happiness. Joy is different. Joy goes deeper. Joy is when your whole being sings because you've caught a glimpse of God at work in your world and you know he's real and you know you're part of it. Joy can creep up and, and catch you by surprise in unexpected places. And it may just be a quick moment for you, but you can't hold on to it, but you know it is. And this might be a news flash for you. God never promised to make you happy, ever. If a preacher tells you God promised to make you happy, leave and guard your wallet. <laughs> Happiness was kicked out when Adam and Eve sinned in the garden. Despite what some preachers teach, your happiness is not even on God's radar screen. God's not here to make you happy and he never once promises you happiness. In fact, if you're happy all the time, something's wrong with your relationship with God. Jesus said, in this world, you will have troubles. He says, each day of your life, you're going to have trouble. Every day, he says, has enough trouble of its own. If your outlook depends on your circumstances, you're going to wear yourself out trying to follow the illusion of happiness. Because happiness depends on your circumstances. And you and I have no control of our circumstances. We live in a fallen world that's full of trouble. God did, however, promise joy to his children. And joy has nothing to do with your circumstances and everything to do with your Savior. Joy is not a feeling it's a, or it's a state of being. Joy is not a feeling, it's a state of being. You're a spiritually filled, joyful person, or you're not. The spiritual fruit of joy comes only from the Holy Spirit. It's only available to those who surrender to Jesus. You can't decide to make it happen. It's God's joy. The power source for joy in your life is God. But you have to decide to abide. You have to decide to spend time with Jesus, to allow him to pull out the weeds of your life, to allow him to build deep roots into him, to agree with him on removing things out of your life and prioritizing him so his joy can flow through you. A lot of people experienced happiness on that first Easter. Yes, their circumstances changed 
because Jesus was alive. They didn't understand it. They didn't recognize it. They didn't know what God was doing. They didn't have the Holy Spirit. All they knew was all of a sudden, I thought he was dead, and here he is. They were happy beyond explosion. All they knew is he'd been crucified, and now he's alive. What they didn't have was joy because they didn't yet understand what God was doing. They didn't yet fully have the Holy Spirit reveal to them what was happening. When you look for joy at Easter, you find it in Jesus. The last few days for the disciples of Jesus was a roller coaster of, don't miss it, emotions. They were riding their emotions. They went from the lowest lows to the highest highs in three days. Their mood and emotion was driven to and fro based on what happens to them. That's all they could do because the supernatural, the spirit, is not driven by emotions. And in fact, this is a key point. Finding joy, a joy that comes from the Holy Spirit, has nothing to do with whether you're sad, happy, or anywhere in between. Joy has nothing to do with your emotions. Circumstances in your life could completely change, completely flip, and your joy wouldn't be touched. Why is that? Because the things on earth cannot touch the things of God. They're expressed regardless of what happens to us in the world because they don't come from this world. The love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, all the fruits that we've been talking about happen in spite of our circumstances. We express love when the circumstance of the world says we should hate. We express kindness when the world says they don't deserve it. We experience God's peace when the world says we should be despondent. If spiritual fruit from the throne of God could be limited by the events on earth, then they wouldn't be from God. In fact, it's our circumstances that set the stage. Supernatural joy is actually hard when everything's going well. When everything's going great in your life and you're happy and it seems like you're, the wind's at your back and you're just everything's going great and you're just going through life wrinkle-free, most of us stop abiding with God. Most of us sort of put that Bible away for a while. We, we don't turn to God until things get desperate again. It's our circumstances that drive us to our feet, our knees. Yet joy is a deep current, like it flows in a river, and it doesn't matter what's going on on the surface. It's just that deeper current that tells you you're in God's hands and it's going to be okay. A steady flow, independent of all the things happening at the surface of your life. Deeper, deeper currents in your life. Joy is a state of being, not an emotion. Write that down. Joy is a state of being, not an emotion. I said at the beginning of this sermon that this year for me has brought a lot of unhappiness, but an incredible amount of joy. When all my circumstances align and I'm happy, I don't really connect with God in the same way as when you go through a year like we just went through. It's the frustration, anger, and sadness that comes from our circumstances in life that draws us to the intimate moments with our Savior. They move me to my knees to say, God, what in the world is going on? Every time somebody comes to me for prayer about a situation in their life, I always pray that God will allow us in the midst of these terrible events to rise above them and allow God to be glorified through whatever happens. 
Let me share with you an example of how horrible circumstances when placed in the life of a spirit-led believer brings glory to God. When I think of a modern-day Paul, when I think of somebody who has been through so much, had so much circumstances, so much suffering, so much challenge in their life, and yet held on to God with everything she has, I think of Joni Erickson Tata. Incredible woman. Read her books. Read her story. 1967, as a 17-year-old teenager, she dove into shallow water at Chesapeake Bay and immediately became a quadriplegic. Paralyzed from the neck down, completely dependent on others, she spent several years wrestling with God, suicidal, severely depressed. One of her 48 best-selling books was her autobiography called Joni. It's an unforgettable story of a young woman's struggle against quadriplegia and depression. It's been distributed worldwide, and in 1979, she was in a feature film called Joni. She learned to paint with a paintbrush between her teeth. She's inspired many with physical disabilities and told them of God's great love through her foundation called Joni and Friends. At the age of 60, some 43 years after her diving accident, Joni was diagnosed with breast cancer. Listen to these words. I can't believe that after all I've been through, after all the struggles, 43 years in a wheelchair, completely dependent, can't feed myself, can't do anything with someone else's help, can't believe that God would give me breast cancer. What have I done to make him so mad? What kind of God picks on those who are weak and paralyzed? How in this world can I serve God that is so cruel, so mean? My life is already bad now and I will never know joy again. Those are words. They're not Joni's words. Let me read to you what she said. I want to assure you that I'm genuinely content to receive from God whatever he deems fit for me, even if it's from his left hand, because something better from his left hand than from no hand at all, right? Where does that come from? I mean, you live your life in a wheelchair and now you've got breast cancer. And you turn to God and you say, okay, whatever, I'm good. Steve Bundy is a close friend of Joni's. Here's what he says. It's who God has molded her to be after 43 years of suffering and 43 years of surrendering her will and the call of God. You're seeing a woman surrendered to God saying, Lord, here is my life, take it and use it. I trust in you and if that's quadriplegia and that's a wheelchair, I surrender to that. If it's cancer and whatever the outcome might be, I surrender to that. He continues and says, it's an attitude of surrender. It's also an attitude of trust in the character of God and the goodness of God. Joni says all the time, I know I can trust God to be good. Joni may struggle with happiness, but she's full of joy. In her state of being, she's a joyous person who admits she's often unhappy. In fact, circumstances seem so stacked against her at times, and yet they're the very circumstances that allow people to see God in her. Like every spiritual fruit, supernatural joy begins when our circumstances overwhelm our happiness. It's when we get to the end of our flesh, when we get to our ability to put on a fake face, that's when we see God's supernatural, natural, beyond us gift kick in. The spiritual fruit of joy becomes evident to others when he empowers us to celebrate circumstances that we could never celebrate on our own. Joni said about her relationship with God, I have learned that the weaker we are, 
the more we need to learn on God, lean on God, and the more we lean on God, the stronger we discover him to be. Spend some time thinking about that quote this week. Do you know where that quote came from? That was Joni's quote this year after she got COVID-19. It's evident that, and she survived, it's evident that Joni spent a lot of time in the sanctuary, in the quiet place with God, because he arranged her circumstances to do just that. If you want to see somebody living out a Paul kind of life on our earth today, it's Joni. It's an incredible woman. She positioned herself. She dies to herself daily. She allows God to flow through her, and you can see his joy in her. Incredible. So what's going on here? What did Paul and Joni know that many of us have not embraced? Where did they learn to find joy in such horrible circumstances? Well, they saw it in Jesus. They saw the Spirit of God, God himself, rise above human circumstances all the time. Jesus never let his circumstances impact his joy, ever. Jesus modeled what it meant to live in a fallen, sinful world without being influenced or defined by it. He walked through a sinful, fallen world in the Spirit. Jesus lived a spiritual life in this world. He was connected to people in the world, but he was never of the world. The things of this world could not change the deep undercurrents of the Spirit of God. It's as if the events in his life weren't good or bad. He seemed for the most part to have no anxiety about anything. He had emotions and he expressed them, sorrow, grief, anger, happiness, but the events of the world never seemed to shape what he was doing. They seemed to be a backdrop for the much bigger things that were going on in his life. Jesus saw the ups and downs of human life through one lens and one lens only. What is the Father doing in this circumstance and how can I use this to glorify him? He didn't ride the roller coaster of highs and lows. He just noted them and used them for a higher purpose. People have learned to live in the Spirit are deeply connected to Jesus. More focused on using their circumstances to reveal and glorify God than they are getting out of their circumstances. It's an attitude of God, if it's your will that I go through, then let's do it well. If it's your will that I go through this, let's do it well. You use the circumstances of my life to bring glory to you, not me. Draw those around me to the truth. I'll go anywhere, anytime, do anything as long as you use it for your glory. People will see God in your life because of the circumstances God allows in your life and the way you react to them. People who are not led by the Spirit of God pray, God, get me out of this. Fix it. People who are Spirit-led pray, God, please don't waste this. If I gotta go through it, make it count for your kingdom. I see it all the time. When it comes to his children, God never wastes pain. On that first Easter Sunday, Jesus was full of joy. Everyone was riding the emotional roller coaster of events as they were unfolding, but he was full of joy. So when we look at the death and resurrection of Christ, we see joy in him and happiness at times in others. Have you ever thought about your last meal? Have you ever played that game? 
what's your last meal? Like if you're on death row, you know, they let you have a last meal. And some people sort of say, well, I would take the slowest eating thing I could, you know, whatever. Have you ever thought about your last meal? I don't know who decided that people on death row should get a last meal, but they did. I think I'd be too nauseous or anxious or fearful to eat much. Oh, what am I saying? I can eat. Well, anyway, all right. <laughs> what if your last meal was like the best meal ever? What if it was like the greatest meal you've ever had and all your favorite people were there and it was a banquet and you were so excited, your last meal is gonna be incredible. Would you look forward to that meal? You think of that meal and you think, yeah, that'd be a great meal. The only problem is it's my last meal. You eat this and then you die. I don't think anybody on earth would look forward to that meal. That would be almost like a lunatic would do that. That would be nuts. The night before Jesus was crucified, just hours before his execution, Immediately before the lashing, the beatings, the mocking, the spitting, the cursing, the salt water on his wounds, the crown of thorns, the rejection of the people, abandonment, separation from the Father, immediately before Jesus was to face the worst circumstance of any human in all of human history, he strolls into a celebration banquet, looks at his disciples, and tells them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover meal with you before I suffer. Where does that come from? I have earnestly desired. The original word in Greek, the one word used here, the, the picture is spouses waiting for the wedding night. I've earnestly desired. This has been on my radar. I have been waiting for this moment. This is so incredible. I'm so excited to be here at the Passover meal. The last meal of mine on earth. I've longed for this like spouses long for their wedding night. What's he talking about? It's Passover. This is the Passover Seder, the Passover meal, and he's the Passover lamb. He's going to be slaughtered and served up for mankind. He knows the circumstances of the way. He knows the prophecies have to be fulfilled. He even says, I've longed for this meal before I suffer. He's not in denial about his circumstances. He's headed to the worst day ever. His human emotions have to be yelling, shout, run, fear, panic. But his spirit engages the circumstances with joy. We hear people talk about the joy of Easter. That Sunday morning when the disciples, when they found the tomb empty, they were full of happiness. They didn't yet understand joy. If you want to see the joy of Easter, you got to look at Jesus. You got to see the times when he rises above the circumstances and reveals the glory of God. It's seen when Jesus rises above and truly celebrates Passover all the time he knows he's the Passover lamb. The joy of Easter is seen when Jesus rises above the circumstances and stoops as a lowly slave to wash the feet of the people that he loves. The joy of Easter is seen as Jesus rises above the circumstances and prays in the garden, begs the Father to find another way, and then submits to what the Father is doing. That moment did not come from earth. It's the supernatural fruit of joy. The joy of Easter is seen as Jesus rises above circumstances and tries to raise Peter above his circumstances, more concerned about Peter and what he's doing in his denial than the denial of himself. 
Joy is Easter is seen as Jesus rises above the circumstances and rather than focusing on the pain of crucifixion, focuses on the eternal salvation of the guy next to him. The joy of Easter is seen as Jesus rises above the circumstances and in the midst of torture and pain reaches out to make sure his mother is cared for. The joy of Easter is seen as Jesus rises above his circumstances while falsely accused, falsely tortured, and dying, and still has compassion for his enemies and says, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. The joy of Easter is seen as Jesus rises above his circumstances from a cross, loves his enemies so much that he begins preaching them a sermon from Psalm 22. Joy of Easter is seen as Jesus rises above his circumstances, tells Satan to go straight to hell, and victoriously walks out of the tomb because it never could contain him, never will, and has no hold on anybody who follows him. It's in every one of those circumstances and those incredible moments, the, the circumstance predict an action, Jesus does the opposite. Jesus rose above the limitations. He saw the moment from God's perspective. Jesus showed us over and over how to live in the Spirit. And you may be thinking, Frank, that sounds great. That's really good. How do we do that exactly? How do I walk out of this room this Easter and focus on joy and focus on living above my circumstances? It's one thing to say it, but honestly, a lot of us, we haven't been very good at it. How do we do this exactly? Well, in Paul's prison letter to the Philippians, After telling us to rejoice in all circumstances, God gives us four keys to supernatural joy. And I want you to focus on these. This year, if you do nothing else between this Easter and next Easter, incorporate these four things into your life. The first, you must always keep an eternal perspective. When things happen in your life, no matter what they are, your first question should be, what is God doing on this earth in my life through me? When life gets tough, When you're persecuted for your faith, when your health is not good, when you hit a speed bump in life, you need to keep your attention above the circumstances and focused on eternal things. Philippians 4, 4, right after he says, rejoice, rejoice always, Paul says this, I say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all, the Lord is near. The Lord is near. You can be calm and gentle in the midst of anything that happens in your life because you know that the Lord is standing right next to you. When you hear yourself telling someone, do you know what they did? Stop, refocus, rise above them and ask God what he's doing. You need to remember to keep your attention focused on eternity. Paul says the Lord is near. What he's saying is this isn't your home. Stop expecting the circumstances of this life to be good. It's a fallen, sinful world, and it's not your home. Just like Jesus, you're now a spiritual being having a human experience. Christians should be known for their joy. That's what we're supposed to be known for, joy. We should be having more fun on earth than anybody else because we know the outcome. We're untouchable. It's incredible. John 10, 10, the thief comes to steal and kill and destroy. I've come that they can have life and have it to the full. When people look at Christians, they should be going, wow, look at how amazing these people are. They're not happy, but boy, they're sure full of joy. Christians should laugh harder, love stronger. Our past is forgiven. Our future is settled. 
When we surrender to that truth, when we see our lives from God's perspective, when we know the Lord is near and His Spirit is in us, we can go through anything with joy. The more we become like Christ, the more joyful we are. Dallas Willard said this, you will not understand God until you understand this. God is the happiest and most joyous being in the universe. I love that. We should be known for our joy. We're not going to be truly happy until Jesus returns, but we can have joy knowing that day is certain. And we can live every day here on earth with an eternal perspective. Like Joni, we can decide each day to surrender and wake up with the attitude of the psalmist. This is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Second thing, express thanks and stop worrying. Easy for you to say. Not my words, God's. Look at the next verse. The Lord is a hand. Do not be anxious about anything. But in everything with prayer and thanksgiving and supplication, let your requests be made known to God. We're to take our problems to the quiet place. We're to take our problems to God. We're to take them to Jesus in prayer. We're to look for his perspective on what's going on in our life. But most of us, instead of experiencing joy and walking in the spirit, we walk in the woe is me kind of life. You know people like that, right? Their life is only about them and no matter what the circumstances, it's bad. Woe is me, woe is me. They live their lives from one seeming disaster to another. Always comparing, always seeing only the negative things in life. Woe is me. These are the people that brighten up a room by leaving it. <laughs> people who bear the name and image of Christ should never let woe is me out of their lips. Should never allow woe is me to define them. And you may be thinking, Frank, you don't know my story. You're right, I don't. But you know Jesus and I know the end of your story. And I know that because of that, woe is not you. What Paul teaches here is humanly impossible. Don't be anxious about anything. Have you ever tried that one? Don't be anxious. Don't be anxious. I wonder if I'm doing it right. Don't be anxious. Don't be, I don't know if I'm doing it right. I'm starting to feel anxious. Worry is not one of the spiritual fruits. However, worry is the warning light that God has put in your life to tell you that you're not spending enough time with Jesus. If you're worrying about anything, you haven't prayed enough. I just promise you, if you're worried about anything, you haven't prayed enough because in this verse, in this passage, God makes a promise. If you come to me with prayer and thanksgiving, there will be a peace of God that transcends all understanding you will have peace. If you don't have peace, it's not God's problem, it's yours. He promises. Paul tells us not to be worried or anxious about anything. Do you see the word but in that verse? Don't worry about anything but in everything. Go talk and get your friend's advice on what you should do. That's not what it says. It says, but in everything... Make your request known to God. How? Prayer. And yes, with pleading. Do you see the attitude? With thanksgiving. Thanksgiving unlocks the heart of God. 
Two little words that change everything, with thanksgiving. When's the last time you got to do a really difficult time in your life and you got on your knees and you started thanking God for all the things in your life? Thankfulness is not a spiritual fruit, but it's the fertilizer. Develop deep roots, pull weeds, add thankfulness. Three steps to growing fruit in your life. Thankfulness is what allows us to get God's perspective on what's going on. When we approach God with thankfulness, we begin to see the big picture. No matter what's happening to you, begin a list of thankfulness. You may, I don't know what to start with. Well, why don't you start with the fact that you don't have to spend eternity in hell? And then add to that, you don't have to earn your salvation. And you can add to that that you don't have to go to the cross for your sins. And you can add to that that you never have to go through anything alone. And you can just build your list after that. You see, because we know the ending, we don't have to be too concerned with how the plot unfolds. Things are going to happen in your life. Jesus said this all the time. You're going to have trouble. Get over it. Because you're already over it because you're spiritual. Focus on joy. Focus on God. Quit focusing on your circumstances. Turn your eyes upon Jesus and the world suddenly becomes down. And he continues, the peace of God, not your peace, not the world's peace, the peace that comes from God that surpasses all understanding. You won't even, where did this come from? My world's falling apart, everything's horrible, and somehow I have this deep sense that it's okay. Paul tells us if we go in with thankfulness and make our requests known, no matter what happens, regardless of whether our circumstances ever change, we can know peace in the midst of chaos. It's not our peace. We don't even understand it. But look at why he gives us this peace, to guard our hearts and our minds. See that word guard? You only have to guard something that's being attacked. What do you think's happened in the middle of your circumstances? You're being attacked by Satan. You're being attacked. You're trying to say, hey, God, and Satan's going, no, no, look over here at this. This is horrible. You'll never get over this. Hey, God, look over here at this. This is getting bigger. It's going to kill you. And you allow your mind to begin to listen to the evil one who comes to steal your joy and to kill you. Satan's battlefield is your mind. It's the only place he can influence your life. And he wants to destroy you. He wants you to think about what's wrong rather than what's right. He wants you to be fearful of your future rather than trusting the one who holds it. He wants you to trust you, not Jesus. He lies to you. He tries to convince you that you cannot have joy until you have control. And until things align the way you want them to align, it's the biggest lie. God may never change your circumstances. In fact, they may get a lot worse. But for those who know Jesus, you cannot have your joy stolen. Because God guards your heart and your mind in Christ. Third thing, dwell on the positive instead of the negative. Philippians, next verse. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about those things. What you have learned and received and heard from seen in me, replace, practice these things and the peace of God will be with you. Rehearse, think about those things. When you want to focus on all the things in your life, turn your focus to heaven. Get an eternal perspective. 
Stop worrying, be thankful, and turn your focus to heaven. Pull the weeds of negativity. If you're constantly exposing yourself to negative thoughts, you will go there. If you surround yourself with negative people, you will go there. Negative, critical people suck joy out of your life. Colossians, Paul says, if then you've been raised with Christ, think the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things that are above, not on the things that are on earth. Maybe to do that, you gotta turn some TV shows off. Maybe some magazines need to be left behind. Maybe you find yourself in a negative situation. I want you to remember Joni. And I want you to thank God for what you have, that you actually got out of your bed this morning and you can actually move your arms and legs and ask God to give you joy in the midst of your circumstance. God, give me your joy so they can see you in me. And then the fourth and final thing, and I'll get done soon. We need to rely on Christ in spite of our circumstances. No matter what we see, no matter what we think is happening, we have to depend on Christ. Philippians 4.11, the next verse. Now that I'm speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I'm to be content. In every situation, I am to be intent. Content. I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound in any and every circumstance. I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthened me. This scripture is ripped out of context more than any other scripture that I've hardly ever seen. What Paul is saying is, look, no matter what my circumstances are, I've learned, it doesn't matter what my circumstances are, I live in Christ, they don't affect me, whether I'm hungry or not, whether I'm rich or not, I can do all things through Christ because I have the spiritual fruit of God in me. We need to make sure that we never forget the source of joy. A joyless person believes they can only have joy when everything lines up perfectly. And in this world, things don't line up perfectly. They think, well, when I get that spouse or when I get that job or when I can have kids or if I never get sick or when the tumor is gone or when I'm in remission, when I can take that vacation, when I can buy that house, then I'll be joyful. No, you won't. Paul says, I know what it's like to have what I need and that's not the secret to joy. I've learned the secret to joy. It's reliance on Christ, he says. Do you know what an oxymoron is? Jumbo shrimp, partially complete, sure bet, short sermon. <laughs> it's Easter, what else you gotta do? Okay, so let me point you to another oxymoron. Joyless Christian. It makes no sense. It's not even really possible. Could there be a Christ follower who doesn't have the joy of Jesus in them? Well, it depends on whether they're abiding or not. Remember, the spiritual fruits are guaranteed to those who abide in Christ. Abide in me and you will produce much fruit. It's a promise straight from Jesus. So if you don't have joy, the problem is not because of your circumstances. The problem is you're not abiding in your circumstances. You may be thinking, I don't have that in me. I'm sorry. I don't know how to do that. I, I, 
If I was paralyzed like Joni, I'd put a bullet in my head. I couldn't muster up joy. My life would be horrible. I couldn't do it. You're right. Neither could she. Everybody knows you couldn't do it. That's why joy is a spiritual fruit. That's why when people look at the body and life of Joni Erickson Tata, they see God because they know she couldn't do it too. What she does comes only through the Holy Spirit walking through her. It's during trials, during horrible times that people expect you to shake your fist at God and instead they see you worshiping and praising him, rejoicing always when you're facing something bigger than you and Satan wants to steal your joy and get you to focus on your circumstances. If your joy has been stolen, you allowed it. I wanna close by looking at a promise from Jesus. But this, my Father, is glorified, that you bear much fruit and prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Christ says, I want to put my joy in you. I want to bring the joy from the throne of God into your life so that it can be full. And it has nothing to do with your circumstances. Billy Graham says this, one of the fruits of the Spirit is joy. You might not be able to work it up on yourself, but the Holy Spirit living inside of you can produce this joy supernaturally. And a Christian is to have joy. That's one of the great characteristics of the Christian is the joy that we have. If you don't have this joy, if you don't have this peace that Christ gives, you'd better search your heart and find out if you really know Christ. It's a wake-up call. If you know Christ, you'll want to abide with him. And if you abide with him, he promises to pour joy out in your life. Not wrinkle-free circumstances, joy. If you're not experiencing it, you're either not saved or you're not abiding. Sobering. If you're a Christ follower and you're not experiencing his joy, something is seriously wrong. Now, I don't know what you're struggling with today. I don't know what circumstances Satan is using right now to try to steal your joy, but I do know there's a God who created you in his image. And he's with you through every circumstance of your life, including this one. And your circumstances may have overwhelmed you, but God's just getting started. It's in your weakness that you discover his strength. The more you lean on God, the stronger he becomes. And in the midst of horrible circumstances, you can discover his joy. The more you identify with Jesus' suffering, the more you'll identify with his glory. Peter said it this way, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening. We're in a sinful, fallen world, Frank. It's not gonna go the way you want it to go. Quit acting surprised. Get over your circumstances. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's suffering that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. In other words, get your eyes off of the circumstances of today and look forward to the day when his glory is revealed. This is a verse I've gone to many times this year. Our world is rejecting Jesus. They're rejecting us. Worst circumstances are coming. They threaten our happiness, but they will never define or steal our joy. You may never be asked to face what Joni has to face. 
But if you know Jesus, you have the power to do it. That power has allowed millions of followers of Jesus to face martyrdom, illness, death, with Jesus' joy flowing through them. It allowed Paul, when writing from prison, locked up from a joyful heart to say, rejoice all ways, all the time in all ways. This Easter Sunday, you and I don't know what the next year looks like. We leave this room to uh, face all kinds of circumstances. I stood here a year ago on this stage and had no idea what the year would hold. I stand here again and have no idea, but here's what I know. No one's gonna steal my joy. And the reason no one's gonna steal my joy is because my Redeemer lives. Let's, let's pray. God, I thank you that your circumstances, our circumstances are in our lives so that we can reveal your glory. That you'll never put us in something we can't get through. But you will put us in things that we need to depend on you. So God, help us as we leave this Easter Sunday to know why we have the hope that we have, to know why we can be filled with joy and to quit looking at our circumstances and look to our future and your promises and live our lives with thankfulness so the world will see you and not us. In Jesus' name, amen. 